The scripture reading this morning is from Ephesians 5, verses 1 through 11. Follow God's example. Therefore, as dearly loved children, walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor, there, nor should there be any obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are, not, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of light consists of all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. This is God's word. You may be seated. Uh, Just a quick word before we pray that uh, today is the deadline and this advertisement is this commercial is, is directed towards the men of our congregation, our church family. Uh, today is the deadline for the, uh, the men's event. It's uh, going to be April 12th and 13th. A fellow by the name of Haas Ridgeway is going to be uh, uh, leading us in that retreat. If you were here this last week and noticed um, uh, a bear wearing people clothing, then you saw Haas, who happened to be a visitor with us this last week, and just a huge, huge individual, not just physically, but also of the heart. And uh, I know that you will be blessed by what it is that he has to say, as well as the fellowship with all of the guys. And one of the things that is um, uh, probably one of the core traditions of of, uh, the men's uh, event is that you get to eat that weekend things that you typically do not eat in front of your wife. I don't know if that's incentive. But for some it is, and uh, it is, uh, and what what you eat in the fellowship hall stays in the fellowship hall. In case you were wondering about that, but I want to encourage you to be a part of that that men's event. There are a group of guys, about eight or so, that have put some work. A group of eight guys that not only have been working, but praying that this event will be a blessing to the men in our church. So take uh, this opportunity. Uh, today to to fill out the registration online or call the church office or or go to the website or how or see one of one of the staff ministers and let us know that you would like to be a part of that um, we want to we want to pray always before we uh, we get into uh, a message on god's word uh, today uh, is going to be no different i'm going to ask you to to bow your heads and for all of us to join our hearts as we ask God to bless us
Oh, great Father, how, how good it is for us to, to stand with each other and to sit with each other in your presence. You have given us this marvelous gift, and that is the gift to sing. But to not sing just like a bird, but, but, to, but to sing as somebody created in your image that recognizes your sovereign, loving, gracious place in all of creation. And in that revelation, you give to us the means by which we can complete that experience by not just sharing it back to you in worship, but to share it with each other in these spiritual songs. And we are grateful not only for that, Father, but also that you have given us a mind and a spirit in which your word speaks to us, not in a two-dimensional way, but much greater and deeper and wider than that. Your word speaks from eternity into our finite minds and our sometimes closed hearts. And so our prayer this morning, Father, as we continue our study of the Sermon on the Mount, is for you to allow us, to bless us with eyes that see and ears that hear. For we in this moment, Father, are seeking truth as you speak it into our hearts. And we are grateful for this sermon that Jesus spoke on a hill 2,000 years ago. We are grateful for it. And we are thankful, Father, for his his presence, and His cross in this life. And for all of this, Father, we give you praise. In the name of Jesus, amen. Ancient world had a lot of big questions. One at the top of the list was, what is it that makes a truly good person in the world? What makes a good person? Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is answering the question, what makes a good person in God's creation, and his answer is this. The kingdom of God is a blessing-rich, right-side-up life that transforms humans into beautiful, disruptive presences in the world by living a righteous life that goes beyond just being technical. Jesus challenges us at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount to be like salt and light in the world. We stop decay in the world by just showing up. We, we dispel darkness in the world by just showing up. And that's how we become that beautiful, disruptive presence in the world. We dispel the darkness. We bring a truth. We, we stop the decay. It is a life in the kingdom that says something like this. If, if Jesus lived my life, and he had my job, he had my, my marriage, my kids, he had my in-laws, if he was, was built with the DNA that I have, this is what my life would look like. It is a righteous life that goes beyond being technically righteous. 
It is a life that begins with righteousness on the inside that works its way out in how we see, how we speak, what we do with our hands and where our feet go, what we do with our body, all of these things. And so Jesus, again, at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount says, I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, who were very concerned about the technicalities of it, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So we go back uh, two years, a year and a half. October 2017, there is a famous and successful Hollywood film producer by the name of Harvey Weinstein, who in that month becomes infamous. He becomes infamous. Why? Harvey Weinstein was active in social issues like poverty. Served on the board of the Robin Hood um, uh, Foundation, a New York City nonprofit that deals with impoverished people. He dealt with issues like AIDS and juvenile diabetes and multiple sclerosis research. But then October of 2017, sexual abuse allegations were made against him by over 80 women. A little over six months later, investigators arrested him on charges of rape, criminal sex act, sex abuse, sexual misconduct. After the story broke, October 2017, one woman encouraged people who had been sexually assaulted or harassed to text the words, Me Too. By the end of that day, 200,000, over 200,000 texts of those two words had been sent. And by the second day, over half a million. Events like this, stories that that just seemed to to stream across the headlines. Stories involving people that we have grown up with, like Bill Cosby, have left people bewildered and a little disoriented. Why? The reason is that who they presented themselves to be publicly was at odds with their hidden life. Who they presented themselves to be publicly was at great odds with their hidden life. Our mission statement, as you know, we say it and and present it enough, is love God, love people, and change the world. How can we, as kingdom of God people, help put an end to sexual harassment in all the places that we live? How can we, as kingdom of God people, help put an end to sexual harassment in all the places and all the people that we encounter? Jesus tells us. Verse 19, whoever practices and teaches. Whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. We, as the people of God, as salt and as light a people who are striving to embody a righteousness that goes beyond just technicalities, but a people whose lives that are seen publicly are a manifestation, an illustration, a demonstration of what God is doing with our souls and with our wills and with our hearts. When we embody the teaching on human sexuality of the kingdom of God, 
then things begin to change. Dallas Willard has written that sexual harassment as we know it would simply disappear under Jesus' ethic of sexuality. I believe he's absolutely right. And so Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 27, he says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her, and here's the point, in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away, it is better for you to lose one member of your body than the whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away, it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to to go into hell. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. A couple of things that stand out in this text. One of them is this. When it comes to our human sexuality in the kingdom of God, sex is a gift from God that is enjoyed by a man and a woman in marriage only. The the Bible does not recognize that kind of a relationship outside of marriage. And there is a reason for it. But the typical understanding that people believe about the Bible and human sexuality is that the Bible isn't for it. That the Bible has a negative view of it. That the Bible is against it. Nothing could be further from the truth. The first sexual thought in the history of creation was thunk by God. God is pro-hormones. But in covenant, we come to understand that sex was created as more than an act of biology. In marriage, through the vows, a man and woman are creating a covenantal relationship with one another that goes deeper than merely emotions and feelings, or even just legalities. Too many times, marriage is treated more as a consumer good than a covenant good. Uh, That language is not original with me. a, a very good book on marriage uh, by Tim and Kathy Keller, The Meaning of Marriage, where he talks about this. But let me illustrate what it means, the, the difference between consumer and covenant when it comes to this. As you know, I am a Ford truck man. I have owned several pickups throughout the years of my life. They have all been Fords. I have heard all the jokes about Fords. Found on road dead. Fixed or repaired daily. And I always respond with first on race day, brother. (laughs) In other words, I have a relationship with Ford Motor Company. And then one day, true story, I'm at the Bass Pro shop about four years ago. And uh, they have out in front of the Bass Pro shop, I see this Toyota Tundra. With huge rebates and incentives and warranties roll by. And I wonder, is that Tundra a better deal? (laughs) I'm just going to say it one more time. First on race day. (laughs) Am I in a covenant relationship with Ford Motor Company? 
Or am I in a consumer relationship with Ford and I will leave if a better deal presents itself? If I treat marriage as a consumer good, then I will leave when a better deal presents itself. In other words, I only love this far, but I go no further. Or I love for what I can get out of you. In a consumer relationship, the other person is just always living in anxiety because it's like they're on audition. They're always having to adjust to you because, guess what? A better deal might just present itself. But in a covenant relationship of marriage, you are saying, your needs as my spouse are more important than my needs. And I'm making you a promise about that. I mean, listen to the words of those vows. I will love you for better or what? I will love you in health and in sickness. I will love you in prosperity or oh, (laughs) poverty. And what do we say at the end? (laughs) You guys need to start going back to your marriage vows. I will love you in prosperity. Somebody say something? Yeah. I will love you in, for better or worse, health or in sickness, prosperity or poverty. I will love and cherish you until death. Death do we part. The sexual relationship reflects with your physical body, what you are already doing with your whole life. Sex is symbolic of what is happening in the entire marriage relationship. Body giving in light of heart and soul giving to each other in covenant is what it is. It's not taking but giving. But in a consumer relationship, You are doing with the physical body what you are not doing with your whole life. And that is why adultery is wrong. And will always, always, always be wrong. And it's also why consent, as in consenting adults, is wrong and will always be wrong outside of marriage. It is interesting that when Jesus begins to teach what salt people and light people look like in the kingdom of God, he starts with anger. Anger, Jesus says, can kill human relationships, including marital love between spouses, leading to divorce, which he mentions at the end of this text. And contempt, contempt, We'll look for a better deal outside of marriage. Another quote by Dallas Willard. The sexual delight that goes naturally with the unique covenantal intimacy of marriage is totally destroyed by anger and contempt. And it can also take a devastating toll within the culture that we live. Is there any anger, is there any contempt that is connected to rape? Yes. Is there any anger, is there any contempt connected to pornography and the objectifying of women 
and men. Absolutely. Is there any anger, is there any contempt connected to sexual abuse and harassment? Yes. To sexually leveraging someone? Yes. And this is why Jesus' teaching doesn't stop with merely not committing adultery technically. He adds, do not substitute sex for God. He says in verse 28, the one that looks lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus says lust in the human heart must be dealt with. Jesus treats lust here as a heart problem. Lust in the heart has to be dealt with and not just dismissed as the result of someone becoming a stumbling block to me. Now, quite frankly, church, being a stumbling block to someone is an issue. Pursuing a chaste life, whether male or female, is the direction, the godly trajectory of our life, but an issue elsewhere. Jesus places the responsibility for lust on the one who has the lustful heart. Bottom line. And the word for lust is very descriptive. It is our old friend epithumia that we talk about from time to time. One of the commentators on the Gospel of Matthew writes that the sense here is not about the natural desire of men and women that they might have for each other, but it has the idea of coveting. Of coveting. It it is not a sin for temptation to present itself. When desire becomes wrong, when it becomes, I've got to have this, whether it's money or uh, fashion or power or whatever it might be, then it becomes a sinful, destructive force in the world. Fantasizing about another person's body until it becomes an object that you will do anything to possess is coveting and turning it into an idol. It's having all the elements. It is having all of the elements of genuine sexual immorality except for the overt movements of the body. The only thing lacking is occasion. The only thing lacking is the opportunity. It is when this has been turned into an idol. A a person who cultivates lust is not a person at home in the goodness of God's presence or the blessing-rich life of His kingdom. And Jesus wants to make sure that everyone understands that that individual is in danger. And that's why we choose to be a beautiful, disruptive presence in a confusing world. And here comes the tricky text. I know you've been waiting for me to get to this all along. What do you do with the right eye in the right hand? If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out, throw it away, it's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. This has been greatly misunderstood throughout the ages. One of the great church fathers, early church fathers, a fellow by the name of, um, of uh, Origen, decided that the, the, the best thing for him in light of this passage was him to lose his ability to reproduce children. 
Also, there has been in history these folks, these groups known as the, the bleeding and the bruised rabbis. They were sort of a, a group within Phariseeism. And these guys did not want technically to look upon a woman in case they would technically lust. I mean, their intentions were great. They wanted to do something that would be pleasing to God. But what they decided to do is every time there was a woman, even the hint of a woman passing by, they would close their eyes. And they were called the bleeding and bruised rabbis because sometimes a woman passes in front of you and it's not very convenient like you're stepping off of a curb. And literally, they would step off of the curb with their eyes closed. And they'd fall face first. Or they'd run into a corner. Could you imagine? And that's, that's the way they handle it. Here's how I understand the text. Jesus did not mean this literally. Jesus does not mistakenly think that cutting off a hand or plucking an eye out will stop a sin that resides in the heart. And can't you just lust with your left eye as easily with your right or with your left hand as well as your right hand? What Jesus is describing is a trajectory of life. A trajectory of life with this particular part of our human body that is headed towards a place called Gehenna. And Gehenna, if, if you look at a a map of, of Jerusalem during the time of Jesus. You had the Temple Mount, and then you had a little peninsula that was surrounded by, by, uh, by, by valleys. You had the Kidron Valley, you had the Tyropian Valley, and at the bottom you had the, the, the Hinnom Valley. And right there at the tip, where the, the Tyropian and the Kidron and the Hinnom Valley came, that place was known as Gehenna. And it was actually the city dump. And what happened there is that all of the things that were were horrible. All of the things that had spoiled, all of the things that were rotten were taken to that particular place and they were burned. And Jesus says, take note of the trajectory that your life is on. And drastically, do something to change course. So what do we do? Well, back at the beginning of the sermon, the question was, how do you become a good person? How do we make a change in this area in the world where we live. One of the things that we sometimes don't, don't think very carefully about is that all of us are born with a kingdom. We are. And it's called your body. And at the center of your person is the will. And you are able to do, your will directs what you're going to do over that little kingdom called your body. Your body is where your will is exercised. And when you enter the kingdom of God, you are submitting your will to the big will of God. And that's one of the things that happens at baptism. Baptism is not just a public declaration of faith. It is not merely the forgiveness of sins. But it is also a demonstration that I am aligning my life up, not just with a Savior, but with a Lord. And not only am I aligning my will with the bigger will of God, but I am, I am participating in the action of God, not only in the world at large, but in the little world in which I live. And so one of the things that Paul says 
to Timothy about his life. He said, he says, train yourself to be godly. Train yourself. Train yourself. You know, we talked last week about, uh, you know, this time of year, the weeds are popping up all over the yards. And, and people are getting out there and they're trying to dig those weeds out. And that's a good thing, by the way. I mean, I'm not saying don't dig weeds out of your yard. But the problem is, is that sometimes you leave some of that deep, deep, deep root still in the ground. And what happens is if your, your lawn is not healthy, is that they're going to pop out again and take over. One of the big keys is to make sure that you've got a beautiful lawn that is watered and fertilized and your attention is creating that beautiful, beautiful, beautiful lawn that squeezes out all of the weeds. And that's what happens with our life. Is that what God is doing is getting us to focus on the beauty, His beauty, the beauty of the kingdom, how He is making you beautiful, how He is making you into the image of His Son Jesus. And one of the reasons why we do the, the, the Draw Near series in our Bible classes right now is to help us to understand what it means to train. To train ourselves, not just to read the Bible, but to really read the Bible. And not just to pray, that is, throw words out at God, but to pray in His presence. It's about learning to find some silence during the day in which all of the distractions that would not just distract us from, from, from praying because they're saying, you've got to take care of me, but even blocking the ability to think about God because there's so much noise. It's about learning how to serve God with our body. It's about creating this beautiful life that wherever it goes as salt and light. It's disruptive just by showing up, but not in a judgmental way, but in a beautiful way. Like when you see a piece of art and you just go, that's one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen in my life, and you're not going to forget it. So we offer an invitation. You know what the invitation is? The invitation is to make a change. It's to make a change. It's to make a change. And when we sing this song, it's going to be a period of time for you to be able to come and to make those, those needs known. I can't help but, but think about these, the, the words, the story that Martin Buber told uh, years and years ago a Jewish theologian, he said, you know, there were these two travelers in the woods. And it was a dark wood and trees everywhere and it was dark and they were lost and they knew they were in danger. And at that point, the storm passes over them and lightning strikes. And the wise person saw the path that was illuminated by the lightning and moved from darkness to light, from danger to safety, while the fool just stared at the lightning. You know, one of the, the things that happens in this particular area when the Word of God penetrates us is that as, 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 as people who have been recreated in the image of Christ, we see differently all humans are created. We see differently all humans who have been created in the image of God. And this is one of those areas. And what helps is knowing what it is that God has invested in us. What is that great hymn that we sing, maybe not nearly as much as we should? Amazing grace. It is amazing. 
for what it does to us. Those words are, are just so fundamental. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. It saved a wretch like me and you and you and you and you. I once was lost, but now I'm what? I was blind, but now I see. And this morning, if you see the light, move. Let's stand and sing. When we walk with the Lord in the light.